0: Appalachia is a 205,000 square mile region that follows the spine of the Appalachian Mountains from southern New York to northern Mississippi. It includes all of West Virginia and parts of 12 other states. Alabama, Georgia, Kentucky, Maryland, Mississippi, New York, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. Often misunderstood and overlooked, Appalachia is home to some of the best writers and publishers in the United States. This program seeks to profile those authors and publishers revealing how the region influences and impacts their work. From the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network and Blog Talk Radio, I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and now, Appalachia. bye And hello, friends. We welcome you to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network and Blog Talk Radio, where we profile some of the best writers and publishers that are living in and writing about Appalachia and the Appalachian region. And we have another outstanding Appalachian author and educator with us here today. Our guest on this edition of Now Appalachia is Christina Fizenik, and she has been teaching college English for more than 20 years. She specializes in teaching and writing creative nonfiction, digital storytelling, as well as Appalachian literature. She's the author of more than 30 books, including several books on food addiction recovery, which we'll be talking with her about shortly. She lives with her son, her husband, and two cats, and she is currently an associate professor of English at California University of Pennsylvania. So, Christina, welcome to Now Appalachia. It's great to have you here. Delighted to talk with you today.
1: Oh, it's great to be here, Elliot. Thank you.
0: I first got in contact with you uh, over social media through Facebook because I had read your book, The Optimistic Food Addict, and it was a book that really uh, connected with me and I really feel like um, gave me some insight into um, sort of what this problem is and what this issue is. And I guess it connected with me because I'm someone who struggled with weight my entire life. And, uh, I'm someone who has, you know, done just about every diet and fad and, and trend that's out there. And sometimes the weight stays off and sometimes it doesn't, but I wanted to read a uh, passage Uh, from page seven that I really think sets up kind of what's going on in the book. And then I'll ask you to comment on it. This comes from your book, The Optimistic Food Addict, and it comes uh, from page seven. And you write this, you say, sometimes I wonder if I'll ever be able to make peace with my body, if I I will ever be able to appreciate it for all of its bumps and bulges and disproportions. I wanna love every inch of it, but I often come away from a full length mirror with more than hatred for it. Can you talk a little bit about that that quote and what that means and kind of how that sets up really everything that, that you focus on, at least in the early part of your book?
1: Yes, I I think that um in, in recent years that has become even more complicated for me. I mean, I think that um many women and and now even more men struggle with body image issues, partly because of media. There was this study that came out that um, on the island of Fuji that, that young women didn't have any problems with eating disorders or anything until um, television was introduced there. And then there was a rate in the population like 40% or more. Um, and we know too that um, it's not uncommon for women as young as nine years old, girls as young as nine years old, to um, be on a diet to be concerned about their weight. So it's as much prevalent in culture at large as it is in, um, as it was in my home growing up because my father struggled, um, and still does with his weight and issues about how he looks and feeling, feelings of embarrassment about being in public and things like that. And I really absorbed, um, a lot of, um, those kinds of, um, inner dialogue that he was experiencing that was complicated, um, by other issues that I talk about in the book, including, um, you know, being raped when I was 11 years old, um, developing a disease or syndrome called polycystic ovarian syndrome, which causes weight gain and an inability to lose weight. It makes it very difficult because it's a hormone disorder. And then uh, last year, the year before last, I found out I have a condition in my legs and uh, thighs and hips called uh, lipedema, which causes uh, distortion. It's a fat uh, tissue disorder that causes distortion, and usually in the legs, most commonly in women, something like 99% um, of the people who have it. Uh, are women. And so I have all of these different dialogues going in my head. And on one hand, there are these girls in magazines and girls I go to school with who have these, what I considered at that time to be normal, beautiful bodies. And I didn't even come close to that. And so I spent a lot of years of my life hating what I look like, hated, hating, um, you know, how I was shaped, how I was built, how I did and didn't fit into clothes and things like that. And part of a big part of my recovery was overcoming some of those, that inner hatred inner and inner dialogue about my weight and my body.
0: I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on America and our connection and or obsession and or compulsion with food. Um, because I I think you write about that quite a bit in relation to some of those circumstances you were just talking about. But, you know, I I was reading it and I was thinking about myself and uh, you know, I'm a stress eater. You know, the more stressed out I am, the more I want, you know, all the carbohydrates and all the sugar I can eat uh, mm-hmm. because that brings me comfort and peace for some reason, even though I know it's not good for me in the back of my mind. But as you think about, you know, uh, your issues with food and, and and those issues that influenced you uh, early on and really throughout your life, as you look at kind of, uh, you know, your students that you work with and people that you interact with, what is going on with, with our connection to food and our obsession with food and, and and I ask that too in the lens or the perspective of, you know, you can go to um any community or, or town in Appalachia or really anywhere else, but especially Appalachia, and no matter what town you go to, there's as many fast food restaurants as there are business and industry uh, or oh, churches yeah. or post offices or anything else going on in, the, in that community or town, no matter how small. So can you talk a little bit about that and give us some perspective on what you think it is that America has in this, terms of this obsession or compulsion with food?
1: Well, I think in some ways um, we have an overabundance of food, and yet we're all starving to death. And what I mean by that is that, um, you know, we do have this glut of fast food, McDonald's and Arby's and Wendy's and different places that are available to us but not every community in fact many communities don't have farmers markets or affordable farmers markets we have an abundance of them here in Wheeling but a lot of times people can't afford um, going there to get fresh fruits and vegetables I also think we have this great gap in knowledge whereas you know when my grandmother was taking care of her family she knew how to cook beans from scratch. She knew how to pluck a chicken. She knew how to do these things that um, I think many Americans have lost touch with because of prepared foods. So that even if you give someone um, all these fresh ingredients, they don't know what to do with them. How do you prepare um, foods starting from just a bag of dry grains and make it into a meal and things like that. So I think that there's a disconnect there. And we know that um, a lot of pre- prepared foods aren't nutri- nutritionally whole or sound. But I think that that also leads us into these um, episodes of guilt that make it hard. So, so here you are, you're running around and you've got um, work that's due and you don't have time and you're taking care of your mom who's in the hospital and your cat needs to be fed and you're, you know, whatever your situation is and you stop at the fast food place because that's all you have time for. And then you regret it and feel guilty about it, which leads to guilty feelings, which often leads to returning to food again to make you feel better, which is totally the opposite of what you want to be doing, but that's where it kind of leads you. So I think, um, our relationship as Americans and as Appalachians, uh, is to food is really complicated. Um, and I don't necessarily think that clean eating and other sort of food movements that we have going around, um, right now are the answer to that.
0: And I wanted to ask you, I I did a little, just some informal polling with people uh, before we did our interview. Uh, You and I had this interview scheduled for a couple weeks, and I just wanted to kind of get uh, some general attitudes that people have about about food and about weight, and just ask you to comment on this based on your experiences and your research and writing your book, uh, The Optimistic Food Addict. Um, And and I'm not going to attribute these to anybody in particular, but, but here's what I've heard some people say that I've asked about this issue. I've talked to some friends of mine who live in very rural parts of Appalachia both um, you know in southern Ohio where I'm broadcasting from and recording from but you know all up and down through the parts of Appalachia and there's two things that 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 have come out of this one a lot of them will say the closest grocery store to me or the closest farmer's market to me is a x number of minutes slash hour drive and for me to go to the grocery store go to that farmer's market it's a whole day event Whereas, as you were saying, I can go down to McDonald's, which is just at the end of my block and get what I need for that meal. And then I've also heard a lot of people say that a common misconception we see is when we look at someone and we see someone that is overweight, that we automatically throw these terms and stereotypes on them, that they're lazy, that they eat too much that they want to be this way, that they're just not exercising, et cetera, et cetera. Can you comment on those two things? Because I was, when I was asking people that just their general thoughts about that, those two themes kind of emerged. Can, can you comment or provide some perspective on what you think about or what comes to your mind when you hear those two things being said? And it's not just an Appalachian thing. I think you could apply that to any part of the country.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think that if you look at um, studies that have been done on food deserts, and that is, um, you know, places that are rural, but also places that are in cities where there isn't easily accessible um, food stores, grocery stores, or even markets that sell fresh food. And I think that, you know, in in today's society, we often are blamed Um, or, or believe, or other people believe that everything is within our control. And I don't necessarily believe that. I think that, um, I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a doctor who has said, you need to lose some weight. And I always say, and how would I do that? What is your plan? And they never, um, have an idea of what that would even mean. I mean, I had one doctor, unfortunately, who, you know, tried to get me to take, um, like some amphetamine or something. And I said, you know, I have a history of anxiety disorder. I don't want to take amphetamines. And so I guess all of that is related. When you take away fresh fruit food options from people and in its place you put in fast food options, people are going to choose those fast food options because they're there. Um, I think transportation is a massive issue throughout Appalachia. Um, even here to get to our shopping center, you have to have a car, you know, you can't walk and our, we do have buses and wheeling and buses in the area, but they run at a limited route. So if you work a night shift and need to go to the grocery store, or if you work day shift and need to go after you get off work, you're going to be out of luck. Um, So I definitely think that proximity, accessibility, understanding of um, nutrition and how weight works and all these things, they're all incredibly complicated. And I think that that's further complicated by um, the opioid addiction. I think that many of us who came up before this became the crisis that it is became addicted to food as our solution or our Way of dealing with poverty and you know joblessness and lack of education and depression and all the things that we deal with um, because even though people definitely still uh, chastise uh, people for being fat, um, e- eating too much is still much more acceptable than using heroin or taking Vicodin, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, But obviously they're not the same thing, but I think that they're related in that way, that this is, that the forerunner for opioid addiction um, is food
0: addiction. Christina Fizanik has been our guest and is our guest here today on Now Appalachia. We're talking to her uh, about her career as a writer. We've been talking a little bit about her book, uh, The Optimistic Food Addict, her most recent book, which came out uh, in 2016. Uh, just a couple more questions on this, and then, and then we can move on to a couple other things. You you dedicated the book and your acknowledgments to your therapist, Carol Ann Alden. I hope I'm pronouncing her name last name right. Alden. Aldine. Aldine, Aldine, Okay, Carol Ann Aldine, And you say, I couldn't have gotten this far without you. I, I imagine when you were writing this book, because, you know, you, you were very honest and open about uh, how these issues with food and weight have affected you personally. But so I imagine that it was um, challenging to write from that perspective. But um, how was Carol Ann helpful? Uh, to you, not maybe through the writing of the book, but throughout this whole process, uh, as you 've been dealing with food and weight and these other issues throughout your whole life, how has she been helpful to you?
1: Well, she is actually um, a certified um, food addiction counselor and she deals with other addictions too and that 's how we approach this uh, my recovery there 's many different ways of dealing with um, eating disorders, especially binge eating disorder, and one of those ways is looking at it from the perspective of addiction and um, we spent a lot of time talking about what triggers me to overeat. And and like you, stress is one of them. But there were other things, too, um, things related to um, PTSD and other issues that I have, anxiety, depression. Um, and they become sort of cyclical as well. Um, and she was just a great support for me. She taught me that I could look at these issues from that I was struggling with from a curiosity perspective instead of blaming myself or, you know, shaming myself for what I was going through. She encouraged me to think about my behavior and my thoughts in a curious way. Like why, why do I want to eat right now? Why do I feel like I'm fat and hate myself? What, you know, instead of, um, Seeing myself as this flawed person, I became a student of my own, in a sense. Like, I studied myself and my own behaviors as much as that is possible. Obviously, there's some limitations on that. But that, that was her role in uh, my recovery process.
0: Well, she sounds like a great person to have in your corner and sounds like she's someone that's really helped you uh, uh, both emotionally and physically uh, through this process. It, it's a wonderful book, Christina, and I would encourage anyone who is struggling with these issues or looks at or uses food as a way to cope or to process something else that's going on in their lives or has been a victim of of taunting and teasing by others for their weight, uh, I, I would really recommend anybody uh, read that book because it, it's, fa- it's fantastic and fascinating, and uh, I'm so glad that you read that because I think, you know, I know you d- wrote it a few years ago, but I think right now in our in our society, both in Appalachia and, and nationwide in our culture, it's, it's a very, very important book, but in addition to this book, you've written 30 other books, um, and you've got yes. a variety of different interests. You've written some scholarly texts. You've, uh, you've written some Uh, you know, texts about crime, you've written some other nonfiction texts. Um, You've got a wide variety of interest uh, as an author and kind of genre expertise. What is your favorite to write? If, If you were to sit down and write another book starting tomorrow, and somebody could say you could write anything you want, any genre you want, what would be your favorite genre? And what would you like to tackle maybe next as a writer?
1: Well, I go back and forth on that, but mostly um, I really love writing about history and specifically about Appalachian history and Wheeling history. Today, I spent most of the day um, working with a man whose mother was from Wheeling and she was excommunicated in 1948 from the Catholic Church because she appeared in a beauty pageant at the age of 19 and i'm working on telling um her story and i love love the history of our region especially northern Appalachia because of how intertwined it is and Wheeling history of course is focuses on and played a crucial role in um, the development of the country because we were the terminus for the national road the B&O railroad went through here Um, we have our suspension bridge that turns 170 on Saturday and so I really really love um, the unexpected things I find about this area when I do historical research. And that's what I do with digital storytelling. My students and I travel around to historical societies in the tri-state area, mostly Northern Appalachia, and tell the stories of those communities. So history is definitely something I, I love writing about. And if I had the opportunity to write a new book right now, I mean, I'm working on a book at the moment on digital storytelling, but if I was going to start a new book, it would be something to do with history.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that uh, idea of digital storytelling. I was going to ask you a little bit about that, so I'm glad you mentioned it. Uh, and and First of all, w- w- I'll ask you here in just a minute to, to kind of define what that is, because we hear that term now in sort of the lexicon of education and learning and multimedia. But are you surprised? I'm always surprised when you really start digging into a lot of the historical research about Northern Appalachia, the heart of Appalachia, Southern Appalachia. There's all these wonderful stories that have never been told. And I, I hear people often say, when are we going to run out of stuff to write about with regards to Appalachian people and culture? And I don't think we ever will because like this gentleman you were just talking about, there's always a story out there that is compelling and interesting that hasn't been told and is looking for somebody to kind of research it and tell it. Are, are you surprised at all by that? Or, or are you of the belief that, you know, we're never really going to run out of great stories to tell about this region?
1: No. And I think that every story is different based on the teller. I mean, you know, you and I could look at the same stack of archival material and tell that story in fundamentally different ways. Same material, but we would tell it in different ways. And um, most recently, my students uh, met the sister of a man who graduated from California University of Pennsylvania and then died in World War II. And the first thing she said when they met them was, I've been waiting since 1946 to tell for someone to tell this story and she gave them all of his letters all of her letters that she wrote to him and they told his story through digital storytelling so there are these small stories that add up to tell this richer um more intricate version of the story of Appalachia.
0: So when we talk about digital storytelling what does that term mean?
1: So basically a digital story, as we understand it, and I was certified in digital storytelling in 2010 um, from the University of Denver at Colorado through a program by Story Center. And um, they used to be the Center for Digital Storytelling, but they changed their name a couple years ago. And the way that we define it is that it is a short video that's two to four minutes in length that uses still and moving images with a soundtrack and also a narrative track in the background. So there's, there's a verbal story, a musical story, and then the images that go along with it. So there's really three stories there that have to somehow come together.
0: And I feel like too, that, you know, where we are today as a society, you know, with technology and with the internet and with Adobe spark and all these other computer programs out there that, um, it's giving us another way to preserve a lot of these stories and tell a lot of these stories uh, about the people and the culture that represents Appalachia.
1: Oh, absolutely. And we have um, uh, several of the stories that my students have created have gone viral. One of them about the, um, uh, the smog that killed a bunch of people in 1948 in Denora, Pennsylvania, it has been seen, I think, by more than ten thousand people. It's been shown on c span it's been featured um in larger documentaries uh it's been shared across the world people have responded to it from all over we have other stories that producers from different shows have found on youtube uh, that my students have created and they've used those as springboards for additional research and they've come to the different communities like condlesville pa and other places to tell a deeper story so we like to consider these um stories that the students create as teasers to get people into the historical societies, to get them to do their own research, and to become fascinated um, about their history. And I always tell my students, this is the most important thing, if we do not tell the stories of our region, people will tell them for us, and they don't always do it well
0: you know I'm so glad you said I think that's an excellent point and we can look at a multitude of examples just from recent memory um, of when the national media swoops in from New York or Chicago or Los Angeles or DC and how they project Appalachia and the people and it's and the culture it's oftentimes very stereotypical very negative uh, in a lot of ways and you're absolutely right if if we don't tell those stories and talk about those stories someone else is going to do it and they're not always going to like exactly the format and the way that the story has been told I want to ask you too Christina you're involved with sort of a a new conference that's kind of shaping up in northern Appalachia uh, a northern Appalachian sort of writers conference Um, and I know that's got a a more formalized title than that but can you tell us a little bit about about that conference and why you and some of your colleagues from that part of Appalachia started it and if people want to attend or participate how can they get involved?
1: Oh, sure. I'm so happy to talk about this. We've been working on it for a couple of years. The engine really started going once the committee agreed with me that Wheeling is the most amazing place and the best place to hold the first um, Writers' Conference of Northern Appalachia. It will be held September 6th through the 8th, 2019. So we have about three months left. Um, The the genesis behind it was a man named P.J. Piccarillo. I don't know if you know him. He's an artist and a writer from Pennsylvania. And he really believed, like many of us here in the region, in this sub-region of Appalachia, that we really don't know sort of what it means to be a Northern Appalachian writer. What are the characteristics of Northern Appalachia? What what does the writing look like? What are our voices like here? What's the poetry and fiction and creative nonfiction? What, you know, what are the boundaries of it? Are we really bound by the arc definition? I mean, do we have to go with the Appalachian regional commissions sort of boundaries of the sub regions or do we incorporate places like Morgantown, West Virginia into Northern Appalachian into our sort of canon or way of thinking about our canon? Do we incorporate, um, parts of Athens into that, um, where, you know, how do we negotiate these boundaries? And so that's why we're, we're having this conference um, this September. We want to get people to come out and, you know, obviously attend all the wonderful presentations we have. I think we have um, 22 presentations altogether that are lined up and we want people to have the opportunity to get to know each other too. Who are we? How do we find each other? When um, I started working with the um, Northern Appalachian group that's on campus at California University of Pennsylvania, we discovered that we had a hard time coming up with a canon because we weren't sure, do we include this person or this person and how, what are the characteristics uh, or the criteria that we want to use to talk about um, who is a Northern Appalachian writer and artist and who isn't and, and what, you know, what are these boundaries? And so um, that's the main purpose of our conference, to get together, have a dialogue, and come to what I think of as the best city in northern Appalachia, but I might be a little biased. Um, And Wheeling, this is our 250th birthday this year. And on the the Saturday of our conference, Wheeling's having its big birthday parade. And so um, not only is this a celebration of uh, the literature and the writing of the region, but also of um, our city and of Appalachia in general, northern Appalachia in general.
0: And you guys are planning, I think, on making this an annual conference. And if folks want to attend or they want to find out more information about lodging and all of that, uh, where can they go to find out that information?
1: I made it easy. When I designed the website, I kept it at writersconferenceofnorthernappalachia.com. So you can't fail. But if you need additional information, um, please reach out to me, at calu.edu
0: so christina in our final minutes with you here today if folks want to get in contact with you to find out more about the writers conference of northern appalachia to find out more uh about your uh, outstanding book the optimistic food addict or the other books that you've written or just talk to you about anything writing related at all uh where can they find you and how can they get in contact with you and where can they get copies of uh, the optimistic food addict
1: the optimistic food act is available on any um bookseller amazon.com barnes and noble has it some uh, local bookstores have it too in in different sections and you can find me through fasonic at calu.edu just my last name at calu and if you can't remember just go to the english department and you'll find me there Um, and i and i love talking to readers and talking to aspiring writers um, about their work and um, i'm always really excited when I get a message from somebody who has read something that I've written and wants to talk about it further and might have even more insight on the issue than I do. So please reach out if you want to talk with me. I'd be glad to do it.
0: We have been delighted to talk with today, uh, Christina Fisonic about her book and her writing career, but her uh, outstanding book that I encourage everyone to read, The Optimistic Food Addict. Um, if you, again, are struggling with weight uh, or struggling with food or just are interested in, in what that whole dynamic and that whole process is like, please pick up a copy of that. And also, if you're interested in attending uh, a good, what will be a good, and I've looked on the website and I can attest to the quality of the workshops that are coming up and the opportunities for fellowship and networking. And coming up with the uh, Writing Conference of Northern Appalachia, uh, which will take place in Wheeling uh, in September, early September of 2019. Uh, please get in touch with Christina uh, to do that and find out more information on the website and the webpage that's been devoted to the conference. Christina, thank you so much for coming on now, Appalachia. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for your excellent writing and for all that you do to support writers and writing in Appalachia. We really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We also want to take a moment to say thanks as we wrap up this edition of Now Appalachia to my producer, Teresa Russ. The executive producer of Now Appalachia is Pam Stack. This is a copyrighted podcast owned by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Elliot Parker. Stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope.